You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You're listening to the I Dig It Podcast. A podcast where we talk about the student perspective of navigating the world of archaeology and anthropology. I'm your host, Michaela. And I'm your host, Alyssa. So today we have two lovely guests with us to chat about their research and experiences in archaeology and the culture of the field. We have Kristen, whose focus is in digital heritage. Hello! And Jesse, whose focus is in experimental archaeology. Hi. Welcome to the podcast. So how have you guys been during quarantine and crazy world right now? Or where are you guys right now? I am in Memphis, Tennessee. And I actually moved to Germany in the middle of a pandemic. So, Oh, wow. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, I didn't realize that. <laughs> how did that go? Yeah, what's in Germany? Why are you there? Well, I'm here because I'm looking at trying to get a job with an open-air museum, possibly one that Ooh. funds experimental archaeological research in the background. And they've got a lot of museums here. And if I want to continue my research in for a PhD, their PhD programs are actually affordable. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Congratulations. I hope it all picks up again soon. Yeah. How is it right now, currently? In Germany. Germany has just kind of been slowly opening its borders again. Uh, Germany is actually handling the situation really well. So I'm, I'm really happy to be here and not <laughs> actually back home. Yeah, I almost think it would have been safer to stay in Cambodia <laughs> than come Seriously. back to the US at this point. <laughs> it's like, I'm kind of glad that I'm here in California right now because I know in the UK they have like, you can only go out once a day or something. Hmm. Some, but I mean, it makes sense. I don't yeah. know. I, I saw something on Facebook today where a lot of universities are setting up this thing where they have like teaching buddies where if a professor becomes ill or dies, there's someone who can take over their oh spot. My God. Oh my <laughs> that's God. like something they're enacting in, in US universities right now. Don't let the science die with the Rona. <laughs> That's so sad. That's really sad. Yeah. How is it in Memphis, Tennessee? There's a whole bunch of cowboys out here who think that they don't have to follow the rules. Oh. Yeah. Yeenah. <laughs> Yeenah, bruh. Thankfully, I think our numbers are going down, but it's still just like, you know, you go out to the store and somebody will walk two feet away from you to like grab something next to you and you're like what 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 <laughs> do you watch the news <laughs> all right so Kristen, how about you tell us a bit about what you did in school what you're doing now yeah so i study digital heritage at the university of york and i was part of the emotive project when we actually developed a virtual reality experience for the ancient site of chetahoyuk very fun how was that? It was intense, amazing, and very difficult. <laughs> <laughs> and you're working on a publish after that, right? On that right now? Yeah, so currently writing a paper for CSCW 2020. Hopefully it does not get postponed due to COVID. Um, but that should be taking place in November. That's exciting. That's the conference you're presenting at? Yes. I think it's... A collaborative social, I cannot remember what it stands for, CSCW. <laughs> it's, it's like specifically collaborative VR 
conference. Okay. Oh, cool. Oh, that's super that's cool. Awesome. Yeah. And Kaylee, you should go. <laughs> I know. I was like, oh, where's this based? <laughs> it's based in Minneapolis, but I think it's going to be virtual this year, sadly. Mm. Everyone hop into VR. We're doing our conference about VR in VR. LOL, they really should. Honestly, <laughs> that'd be horrible. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it'd be totally meta. It's been it really would. cool to see what people have been doing with VR during this time, too, like concerts and stuff like that. I know Travis Scott did a huge concert in Minecraft or some, or Fortnite. <laughs> no, it was Fortnite. He did a huge concert in what? Fortnite. <laughs> oh, yeah. my God. That's incredible. I did not hear about that. Yeah, all like there's tons of museums now releasing all of their you know mm-hmm. VR tours, which – a lot of them have been around for a while, but they're just sort of becoming popular because everyone's bored at home. <laughs> yeah. They're just like, oh, check out our virtual exhibits. Yeah. Now's the time to promote them. And how about you, Jesse? Uh, well, I just finished my master's in material culture and experimental archaeology also at the University of York. My research was actually focused in trying to establish the possibility that the Anglo-Saxons had cider let alone how we would actually find uh, cider in the archaeology, uh, dealing with invisible majority material culture and trying to trace archaeological signatures of production on seeds. Oh, how did that go? Also, it was delicious. Um, <laughs> yeah. It was absolutely delicious. It was so yeah. good. It was wonderful. <laughs> yeah. Your project was so hype at school. and We all got to <laughs> go to her apartment and try it. <laughs> I I don't want to say it was good though. <laughs> I remember it tasting very. <laughs> so that was the second batch that you guys got to try. That was done with Ramley apples, uh, and that was a slightly different. That one was for the archaeological signature. So I only made that because I needed to smash a bunch of apple seeds. And I wasn't going <laughs> to let the juice go to waste. The the really delicious was the first one. That one was like really sh- – it didn't sit as long as the other one too, right? I think it had like a Correct. Yeah, that was still time. really yeah. young cider. It had a long way to go on fermentation. The first one was, <laughs> was crab still apples. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was. Well, of course, free alcohol. <laughs> the first one was a lot sweeter as well. I remember trying it. Yeah, which surprised a lot of people because it was crab apple based, but that was due to the particular methodology of production I used. The first one was based on using a cryo-extraction process to try and simulate what I believed might have been part of the production methods the Anglo-Saxons used, which makes mm. it sweet and What strong. does that look like? What is cryo-extraction? Good question. Cryo-extraction is when you harvest the very end of the season. Crab apples can keep growing in, well into December. And you want to actually harvest more off of the ground rather than on the tree, but you can also on the tree. The reason being the last harvest is going to have a lot more sugar inside of the apples, but you also want to harvest during a frost. So if you're mashing frozen apples, then it's actually reducing the amount of water that is being put into the actual end product. So you're actually going to have concentrated sugars. So sweeter if you don't ferment it all the way. And it's also going to have a possibility of being much stronger for your ABV. Wow. That sounds really cool. (laughs) (laughs) Did you do that for both the batches or just the first batch? I did it kind of for both. So I actually had to do an altered cryo extraction by doing a 
well, I was doing an altered version of cryoconcentration, which is a similar method to cryoextraction. Cryoextraction is ideal because then I would have been able to do it naturally, but I couldn't. Cryoconcentration is where you have the apples frozen first, and then I was partially thawing them and keeping an eye on the actual temperatures of the apples before mm. we started milling them. But I also did a secondary pressing after the primary pressing so that you could tell how much water was actually withheld through that method. How did you guys both get interested in your topics? Like, that's not something I would have naturally come to. So where'd you, where'd you get this idea from for your dissertation? I have no idea. <laughs> it came to me in a dream. What? <laughs> Jesse, I thought that yours came from like a, a, you had an interest in food originally, right? Kind of, but I never thought I would do it for archaeology. <laughs> I wanted to burn things. I was going to go into like <laughs> mutilating pig corpses and burning them as cremation practice. That's what I was going to originally do. <laughs> From burning to cider making. Yeah. It's all debauchery, though, I guess. Uh, Yeah. You still got to smash things, so. (laughs) You just get smashed (laughs) in the end. um, (laughs) Would you like to explain where you froze your 40 pounds of apples? (laughs) Yes, I would like to make a public official thank you to Kristen and her roommate, (laughs) whose name I never actually learned. Um because she always hid in another room, uh, for letting me use your deep freezer <laughs> above your stairway. You are oh, That so was the welcome. second batch, though. That is the second batch. The first batch, I overflowed my own freezer, which I'm not uh-huh. entirely sure my flatmates were really happy with. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> because you were at Student Castle, right? Student accommodation. Yes, I was at Student Castle. Oh, no. oh man. Which is also where I fermented the cider. <laughs> the first batch. The second batch, I would also like to officially thank Liz and John. They let me ferment the second batch in their their house. It was a team effort. Bless them all. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I was not short on volunteers. If you tell them they can't drink it unless they help you, they will help you. Yeah. She had no shortage of volunteers, let me tell you. <laughs> I mean, free experimental alcohol. I would also like to add that I cycled those 40 pounds of frozen apples in a backpack <laughs> to Jesse on the day of the experiment. Yes. <laughs> yes. Just going to throw that in there. Did you do any sort of like videoing of how you were making this process? Um, I did not do video so much. I got a lot of photos. I do actually have a tiny clip, which I, I can send you, of the first batch that I fermented in glass because it, you can actually see the mother the, or the yeast sitting on top and all the carbonation bubbles flying through the glass. Ooh. Yeah, send us all those photos. I might have some videos, potentially. I'm not sure. Oh, I have some videos of you working in G60. <laughs> I'm sure you do. VR. <laughs> Well, what's so funny about like Kristen's work is you walk into the room and she has a headset and she's just scraping at air. Like, <laughs> <laughs> You're like, oh, what you doing there, buddy? Yeah, exactly. And I could like, I could always hear someone walk in, so I'd be like, hello, <laughs> who's there? <laughs> I can't see you. I can barely hear you, but I know you're there. <laughs> 
didn't they, didn't you turn off the gravity or something and you got stuck trying to get the objects down? You were climbing a table and <sighs> we were all silent because you were in a conference call, but worried you were going to fall off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So like they turned the gravity off in, in the, just like in the world. And we had these blocks that we were trying to move around and I picked one up and accidentally let go of it. So it was like just floating around in the virtual space and it like got stuck on the ceiling. So in the real world, I had to like stand on a table to reach up in the virtual world and grab the block. But then like the room was full of people in G60. <laughs> so every, there were probably like seven people staring at me like silently. I could like hear their silence. <laughs> <laughs> and everyone like I heard whispers like I heard Jesse go somebody needs to make sure she doesn't fall <laughs> yeah that was actually then me because I was the only one that got up at first somebody else got up after that I don't know who it was oh my god <laughs> was all this being projected like on a screen in the room no nobody could see what I was doing. they were just watching you <laughs> just Kristen on table just doing her thing <laughs> With her headset on, so she can't see where she's putting her feet. No. <laughs> Just like to be clear, that's what's freaked me out. <laughs> that oh was the God. fun of it. No, that's very unsafe. Do not do that, people. What was your role specifically on the Emotive Project? So I was developing the user experience for um, the Chattahoyuk VR project. Um, what that means is basically... There was a technical team that built the virtual environment. So what you see when you're in the experience, but then like, okay, you're there. What do you do in there? And so I built, you know, the whole script, the plot, um, user interactions and everything like that. Mm. Did that involve like character development too and the people inside of the world? Or were there people inside of the world? Initially, I was going to use a non-player character to sort of like uh, tour guide people around. But then we decided that that just was not a good idea. So no, there's no character. Mm -hmm. When you're in the experience, you just hear a voiceover. And it says like, you know, click the button on your controller to pick up an object. And it, you know, and then it, it tells you about the site and it explains everything, but it's not like a personality per se. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. I just want to say that I was able to experience that in Glasgow. I really enjoyed it. I got matched up with this random woman and she was wonderful. At first, like we got introduced and it was kind of like a timid hi, okay, kind of like chit chat. And then we get into the experience and then we become just like best friends. And like we can't <laughs> see each other, like our physical bodies, but we see our avatars and then being able to decorate things and pick up stuff and we have to wave at each other and high five to be able to continue. So it makes it very interactive. And oh, cool. I absolutely love the experience because being able to interact in such a way in VR, especially like with the high fives, it becomes more immersive for me, at least. And then mm -hmm. afterwards, like after the experience, when we got out of the headsets, we gave each other a high five and be like, yeah, Aww. good job, us. That was adorable. I bet it's a big difference between like reading things and actually doing things. Mm -hmm. Well, conceptually, we also designed it to... I mean, it focuses on enhancing social interaction. So the idea is to put two strangers in there at the same time. And ideally, by the end of it, like you said, they, they become friends. So that was planned. Yeah, that was planned. That was the whole oh. design. Whoa. <laughs> it's like, Michaela, this is your partner. And I'm like, okay, hi. Just throwing <laughs> you in there. Wee, let's do it. 
the thing about it is most VR experiences and heritage are super education focused to the point that like you have these amazing visuals and like you're learning all this information, but it's sort of like not engaging. Mm -hmm. So the idea behind this is we minimize the education and we enhance the social interaction. That's cool. Then it, it, inspires them to go find out more about the world they were just into so exactly yeah I think that's awesome now I have a quick question for Kristen actually now I remember you were working on something with the avatars did uh, did you end up going with uh, geometry shapes or what what exactly did the avatars result in oh the avatars (laughs) 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 <laughs> that was a uh, that was a challenge. So it was just the dynamic of the project is really interesting in the sense that um, we had teams all over Europe doing diff- building different aspects of the project. Um, so we were all sort of in our own specialist fields and having to sort of come together and communicate completely, you know, uh, unknown topics to people, essentially. Part of our technical team at first had this super masculine avatar it was like the beefiest man torso (laughs) with like pectorals and like you know and these massive hands they were huge I felt like I was wearing boxing gloves in there and it was just like super mannish and immediately me and my supervisor uh Dr. Sarah Perry she we were both telling them that we needed to have a non-gendered avatar like no questions <laughs> asked this cannot <laughs> this cannot exist in the heritage world <laughs> <laughs> and for whatever reason it wasn't it was just a complicated process number 1 to convince them why this was necessary and number 2 to just sort of build something that made sense. So to answer your question, Jesse, yes. In the end, we ended up with what we called a humanoid, which is basically like a ovular head and a sort of pill-shaped torso. So it, it, nothing was gendered at all. So you had like a floating head, a torso, and hands. All right, we're about to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to hear about how Kristen got into her research. Stay tuned. <laughs> All right, so Kristen, how did you first get interested in digital heritage, digital archaeology, VR stuff? Yeah, it's sort of a winding story, but I did my undergrad in anthropology. While I was getting my undergrad, I worked at a public makerspace, which not everybody knows what that is, but basically it's a place where, well, this was public, so anybody could show up and use like 3D printers or vinyl clutters or we had a photography studio and like just tons of crazy cool creative equipment we had like a loom and a sewing lab and that was just general use not archaeology use yeah just general use so yeah i'm like a tech nerd basically is uh, (laughs) i'm an anthropology slash tech nerd so you're seeing a natural progression here i'm sure we also had vr headsets that i would just like put people in all day long And also just kind of like tinker with. So in my downtime, I'd be like, okay, you know, there's no one here. What am I going to do? And I would usually just teach myself a new random skill. Um, And I taught myself photogrammetry there first. So just basically building 3D models of physical objects. And I was like, hey, you know, I started to find out that people were using this to 3D model artifacts and cultural objects. And I got really interested in that. 
So I actually was also volunteering at a special collections department at the time at the university I was at. And I started 3D modeling artifacts there. And also just like randomly one day I was like, hey, I want to check out this 3D model in the VR headset and just sort of like figured out how to do all of that. I basically taught myself the essential, you know, the super basic skills. It's not like I got super good at it myself or anything, but I taught myself the basics of the technology and I started doing a bit of my own research and realized that this is just something I wanted to pursue further. And that's actually how I ended up at York. I was trying to find a master's program in the States that was you know, some sort of digital focus on cultural studies and cultural assets or digital assets. Mm -hmm. But I just could not find anything in the States. And so I moved to England. (laughs) (laughs) Casual. (laughs) I still have that little yellow lamacy that you printed out for me. Oh, yes. I forgot I did that. (laughs) (laughs) We talked like so long before we ended up at York. So we did. And we, yeah, we had a mutual love of like uh, 3D modeling Mesopotamian. And Shrek. Yeah, that's how I ended up at York too. I couldn't find anything with digital archaeology in the US. And mm-hmm. I think the top programs were like York and Edinburgh. I was like, oh, well, I guess I'm moving to England. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> I literally Googled 3D museums. BR and artifacts, something like that. And then York came up and then that's when I emailed the director at the time, Dr. Sarah Perry. And I was just like, I'm interested in this, 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 this. Is this what this program would offer? And then, yeah. They're like, you <laughs> basically. Yep. I'm like, cool. <laughs> and then we were all acquainted. And how about for you, Jesse? How did you get into your research for experimental archaeology? With experimental archaeology, there's very few programs that do it. And Uh, A lot of people, and I've come across this, even a lot of archaeologists don't actually know what it is. Uh, And I I kind of had an idea what it was, but I didn't really know what it was until I came across the program. Um, Our year, myself, Rin, Jim, we were the very first cohort of the program at York, actually, for experimental archaeology and material culture. Uh, So I kind of came across it because I wasn't really sure I wanted what I wanted to focus in. And there were so many options, medieval or funerary or a bunch of different things. And then I came across that on an accident and decided that was perfect. It's exactly what I want to do. It's mm-hmm. hands-on as well as uh, book and head related. So, My main exposure to experimental archaeology was an undergrad. Our professor showed us Adel Adel Bob. Oh, yes. Oh. <laughs> yes. I love Adel Adel Bob. <laughs> That's that's my extent of experimental archaeology knowledge. It's like making weapons and trying them out. And... Yeah, that, that's well. That's one of the things, though. Too is uh, people that do know what experimental archaeology is. There's uh, this assumption, like Adelaide, so prehistory. A lot of people assume that if you're into experimental archaeology, you are a prehistoric archaeologist, that you really like the Mesolithic, Neolithic, and Paleolithic periods, which is not necessarily true. (laughs) I myself focus on more historical periods, and actually every single person in my cohort uh, were more medieval. (laughs) Director for our program, Dr. Amy Little, is she does Mesolithic, and her work is phenomenal. And everyone else in the department also phenomenal, but they all do prehistoric. <laughs> Bit of an interesting sort of 
test of how the program was going to work with people coming in that were actually interested in historic periods. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I feel like that was something that was good about York is you could really choose whatever you wanted for your research and you didn't have to have someone who was doing something close to it. Like mine was in Cambodia and literally no one in York studies Cambodia, but I was still mm-hmm. able to do it fine. What did you guys think about the program in general and York as a place and the people? The people were amazing. I have to say that I, like I said, I did not want to move to England for my master's and I was really re- reluctant. I found the program and was like, oh, this is exactly what I want to study, but but England. So I reached out to the department head and just said, hey, I'm interested. Sort of like what you did, Michaela. She responded so quick. She set up a Skype call with me like that Mm -hmm. week and we talked and she was great. And it was just like the first time. I mean, I had been contacting like master's programs all over the damn place for months before that. And this was the first time that I had like quick, super friendly response from any anybody in the department. So that actually was a huge determining factor for me. I'll have to say that when I emailed them as well, it was an like an immediate response of like all this information and then immediately trying to set up a Skype call. But we were both doing field work in that month. So then it was going to be after that because I was in Bulgaria and then she was doing her field research. I, th- I bet it was in Chattahoyuk. Yeah, probably. And then we had our Skype call. And then she put me into contact with the now director, Dr. Colleen Morgan, and kind of going into that because it was like, oh, California. She went to UC Berkeley. I live in California. And Ah. so that was, it was just so friendly and it was just not anything like I had seen before. So I totally get what you mean. Even their application turnaround was so quick. I applied the first week of January and got accepted like two weeks later. And I hadn't heard back from, I applied to three schools in England and I didn't hear back from the other ones until like a full month or two after York replied. So, yeah. Y'all, I literally applied in June, <laughs> late, <laughs> late in June, to start in <laughs> September. I got accepted in two days. Oh my God. That's amazing. And I was like, well, guess I'm moving overseas in two months. Like, we <laughs> worst two months of my life. <laughs> yeah, that, I remember that being super stressful for you. With, like, you being accepted two days after you applied, I think the digital archaeology program was a little overflowing from what I remember in yeah. my master's degree. Like, Katarina Cooper, she had to step in for a class that didn't have a teacher because Mm -hmm. there were just too many kids that wanted to take it. And yeah, she was just thrown into that. And I think that happened in a couple other places too. And we're talking about the, like our digital experience. What about you, Jesse, for the experimental experience for those classes? Uh, I actually, I actually really loved it because when I got into those classes, I felt energized. I loved that it was mostly debate focused, but I know with experimental archaeology, at least everyone who was taking the classes had almost no previous experience. So, which is one of the reasons why they were starting at the beginning for us. I, I don't like the the fact that there's your whole grade for a class depends on one paper. <laughs> By the second term, I started to see a trend where people just didn't care about the first like half of 
their class and only focused on the paper that was graded. So people like wouldn't do the homework because no one was looking at it anyway or that sort of thing. So that ends up like you're not learning anything for that whole first half of the term and then until you're working on your summative paper. I did come across people doing that. Uh, one of my issues, I'm, I'm a compulsive, I have to participate in discussions if they need to um and, and uh, if there's if people are giving presentations i always have to come up with at least one question for them because i hate being up there and having no questions yeah it's so good I, practice i'm one of those people um but it, to be able to have questions and be to be able to participate in discussions i have to read everything so i'm i'm dyslexic so all of the online readings that we could get our hands on, my computer, I have it set so it reads to me. But I, that means I cannot speed read and I can't just skim, which is what I found a lot of people were doing. So I'm actually reading all of the readings, which is extremely time consuming wow, uh, with wow. our reading lists. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the reading lists were quite intensive, um, especially for a program like that, which you can't speed up. But I, I did find out that a lot of my friends, um, especially the ones who were from the UK that have been through similar programs before, were actually just skimming bits and thought it was ridiculous to read the whole thing. And Mm -hmm. it was because it was time consuming. That was really stressful for me. However, I did find that in doing all of the readings every week for every class, I was much better prepared to actually interact in the discussions and discourse. And I feel that I got a lot more out of the class than maybe some of our counterparts Mm -hmm. did because of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm sure you did. Because honestly, I'm not going to lie, I was one of those people who slacked off (laughs) on the first first half of the second term. Not the first term. The first term I was like on my game and reading stuff and like super engaged. But I think I just got a little, I got disheartened with, the this the way it was set up yeah and just like the one of my first classes it was just kind of it was a really frustrating experience for me so the the first part of the second term I definitely slacked off more for one of my classes but then um the CHM class that I took cultural heritage management yes that (laughs) I absolutely loved both of those classes and so I did a lot more of the readings for uh, both terms and I definitely gained a lot more from that class in part because I didn't slack off in the second term. (laughs) Yes. Okay, fine. (laughs) (laughs) I know I'm the type of reader who I read the day of or the night before just for it to be fresh in my memory. Even if I take like all the notes that I do, I'm just like, it just needs to be that fresh. So it's like, I do kind of wait, but then it, I, I do the reading. But it's just like enabled for me to like participate. I have to, mm-hmm. I wait. I remember like on the grading of my essays coming from American University, the only thing they would pick out was the way I wrote instead of what I was writing about. And so like for my first formative essays, which aren't counted towards your grade, they just marked up everything and I got like an F on my first paper ever at UK University. I was like, oh no, is this how like the rest of the year is going to (laughs) be? But then I figured out like you just have to write in their style and it doesn't matter. Like it, it didn't feel like it mattered what I was saying a lot of the time, as long as I wrote it how they wanted me to write it. And I felt kind of disheartened with that um, because 
it's like some people didn't figure that out and got punished for it, even though they wrote like a really good paper. Yeah. So yeah, I think, I don't know. There were a lot of things I would change. A lot of things I like to, like I wouldn't take back that experience for anything. I think it was a great experience in general, but yeah, there's, there's a lot I would have done differently, like in the department, if I was putting it together. I would be hesitant to just recommend it to someone. Like I, I think if somebody asked me right now, yeah, I would like preface, I would say like, I have no regrets. I'm super glad I did it. One of the best decisions I ever made in my life. But I would also preface it with like, but you need to be aware of, you know, these issues and challenges sort of yeah. thing. That you'll probably find at every UK degree too. Yeah. Yeah, I will have to say that this whole like the whole like UK master's experience was the first time I never missed a class. And I was so happy because I even had a <laughs> fractured ankle. I was excited to go to the classes where in undergrad, I was excited to go to the classes. But it was just like, uh, I just want to stay home. But it was just like, no, I want to go. I want to learn. Well, I think part of that is like once you get to the master's level, it's apparent that, okay, you're here to continue learning. Like, hopefully you wouldn't go to a master's and be like, nah. And it's all like in the topics you're interested in, too. You're not like having to take random things that don't really interest you. Yeah. So it was just exciting for me. I don't know. I agree. It was definitely a good time. I just had a lot of issues. And I got to meet (laughs) y'all. Yeah, we got to meet (laughs) y'all. Yeah, I think I had the most fun outside of the classroom, definitely, with, like, our cohort was amazing and all the different topics of research we had and just so many different types of archaeology that I had never really thought of and then getting to talk with everyone in those, like, at the pub or whatever. That was super fun. And I think that's what I value most about the UK experience with education is all of the after-class things that happen. I will never forget the first day. I think it was like we did some sort of walking tour before classes started, like the week before they started. And we sort of walked around the city and someone was like, you know, pointing out stuff to us or whatever. And as with literally everything in the department, it ended in the pub. <laughs> <laughs> like By the end of this, they're like, all right, we're heading to such and such pub to get some some pints and like I'm like all right yeah, cool eagle? that time we actually went to evil eye which which oh. everything else afterwards was the eagle and child but they have adventure time themed menus that that first night I remember going to get a pint and then going to sit down at the table and I'm sitting out at the table next to like the man who's about to be my professor just like (laughs) sipping a pint and he's like oh no no call me john like i was trying to call him dr schofield (laughs) he's like no no don't call me dr schofield call me john (laughs) yeah everyone there just goes by first names all the professors they don't go by doctor professor it's just Colleen. So cash. That took me a really long time to get used to. Although I've been told that that is pretty much strictly the archaeology department at University of York. I've been told it's really? not necessarily the same throughout the rest of the UK. I know my flatmates that, because I lived on campus, they never went out to the pubs with their professors or anything. And they're like, no, we don't. We just, we don't do that. <laughs> that just speaks to archaeologists in general. Well, we know that 
there, as an anthropologist, I can say there are almost no universals culturally, like throughout all of human history. But one universal is the fact that archaeologists love to drink. Love to drink. <laughs> Uh, cheers to that. Cheers. <laughs> I think it's it's just a great way to unwind. Like when you're in the field, it's a great way to unwind after a hard day's work for classes. It's great after you put a lot of things into your brain. Yeah, it was cool. Like there was no pressure to go drink or anything like that but just to like go hang out with everyone at the pub and just be in that casual environment where you stop seeing these people as like some almighty figure and they're just regular people teaching what they love and you kind of get to see like the human part of them outside of the classroom and I think that's a super valuable experience that pub culture gives us especially in England and that's not as accessible in the U.S. either you can't just walk down to the bar off of campus and that was something really unique about York because it's a walking city you can just walk anywhere and so that made for culture in the department to be very well I felt it also to be very inclusive as well. Yeah, because yeah. it would be like, "Oh, we're all we're going to the pub after this. Come Everyone on, come on!" It's, oh no, we want you here. It's like, what? You want? Okay. Me? <laughs> and it goes for everyone too. To be like, no, no, come. Like, we want to. We want to talk to you. Mm-hmm. Well, and all the events pretty much ended that way. Our our induction. We drank all of the wine at King's Manor first, mm-hmm. and then everybody went to the pub. All of the the talks, they bribe not just the students, but I think they were also bribing the professors to go to those talks, those lectures, with free wine. When the wine was gone, everybody would go to the pub. Yeah. Yeah. That was the crazy thing, too, is not only did everything end by going to the pub, but they actually serve you alcohol in the the classroom. (laughs) Like, not, like, in the classroom normally, but, like, you know, it's like an an evening time lecture, you know. This is just... It, that is sort of still mind-blowing to me. Oh, it's our weekly Tuesday seminar. Come over. We have free wine. We have juice, water. Just come over and have a good time. <laughs> it's like, okay, sure. Free wine? Yeah. Sounds great. <laughs> I'm a broke master's student. <laughs> and the pub would give you a student discount if you were an archaeologist. Yes, student, so. 10%. <laughs> that's that's when you know. <laughs> <laughs> that's when you know archaeology department is a regular <laughs> we don't want to call it archaeology but we could <laughs> we could it brings into a good feeling of being around this sort of cohort and just good vibes all around it's like you're not pressured to drink or anything like that and you don't feel uncomfortable but it was just like hey we want to actually talk and like this is how we can mingle maybe alcohol can help boost your confidence to talk to these like superior directors (laughs) that you're just very intimidated by but yeah I also think part of it's that like we all worked really hard and so it was just a nice way to just unwind and relax for a bit I would like to just state because for anyone listening to this they probably will think archaeologists are all a bunch of alcoholics I mean, they're they're to an extent, some are, yes. Uh, But I would like to state that not everyone is. And the drinking culture 
it wasn't, we weren't doing shots off the bar. We weren't no. doing <laughs> jello no. shots or belly shots or we weren't drinking hard liquor all the time. You might nurse a single drink for several hours the whole or night, just yeah. pints the whole night of cider or uh, beer or something, but it wasn't, so it's, it wasn't heavy drinking. There was lots of drinking, but it wasn't heavy drinking. That's a good point to make, I think, because we weren't getting, like, we weren't going out to get sloshed. We weren't yeah. getting messy. Having a casual drink while trying to learn about somebody's research or just talking to someone. So you don't want to get wasted because you want to actually, like, hear yeah. this person out <laughs> and be a part of this conversation. So on that note, we will take a break here. And when we come back, we'll talk about what we're all doing now and what we want to do in the future with archaeology. See you in a bit. To close us off, let's talk about what we're doing now and what we want to do once Corona stops being an issue. So currently I am co-authoring actually two conference papers on my work with the Emotive Project. So developing the, the VR experience for Chattahoyuk. Um, I anticipate that I'll be able to present both of them virtually sometime by the end of the year, pending whatever the COVID mess. But in addition to that, I really right now I'm just focusing on finding work instead of going straight into a PhD. I wanted to get some actual work experience in my field so that I could, you know, have a better chance of not being poor later on. in life. <laughs> so you want to do a PhD? Yeah, definitely. My plan is to maybe work for, I don't know, two years or something, maybe one one or two years, uh, sort out where I would do a PhD. I think I'd only do a fully funded PhD at this point because I have enough student debt. So just mm -hmm. finding the right program and the right fit for me. Um, but I anticipate like within the next five years, I will definitely be starting a PhD. I'm just kind of giving myself time to... Mm -hmm unwind and get some work experience that sounds like a good plan we shall see that's predicated on me getting a job <laughs> phds are starting to get rid of gre testing too so that's cool what that's yeah. good to know my school didn't require it when i applied this year or this last year and i think stanford more schools are hopping on that. yeah stanford didn't require a gre what and it's and it's fully funded so they exist <laughs> that is the dream yeah private schools are the way to go if you can get in for sure okay good to know that's what i'll be looking for yeah. <laughs> that alumni funding really helps <laughs> <laughs> what about you jesse what's happening i am looking for work though i do intend to go for a phd uh, in the future uh though in the meantime, I am planning on trying to figure out how to turn my dissertation into a few articles that can get published. And I'm also working on a project for a YouTube channel for experimental archaeology, uh, where we can do tutorials on different crafts, but also talk about the archaeology and the experimentations and the process of how to go about it as well as teaching people. So I will be starting with null bending, which is a Viking needlework style. It's just badass, honestly. Uh, you can make all kinds of cool stuff with it. 
And so teaching people how to do that. Uh, and then beyond the knob bending, I'm hoping to do leather work and some woodwork and hopefully get some other experimental archaeologists and other craftsmen, historical craftsmen wow. onto the channel at some point. But it's uh, right now in the planning stages, I don't have a YouTube domain name set up for it or anything That's yet. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Well, you'll have to link us when that becomes a thing. We'll share it with yeah. the Discord and everyone. That sounds awesome. Thank you. Well, <laughs> I'm excited for that. I know. Yeah, me too. I loved your the video that you made for – what was it, Jesse? <laughs> that, that, it was like oh, for the Exarch the program napping. in York. Yeah, that's yeah, right. So – Flint napping documentary. We had to do a flint napping documentary <laughs> for children from ages seven to twelve to teach them the scientific process. And we were doing flint napping for flint scrapers. And I got well, I couldn't sleep, and so <laughs> I had. They gave everyone iPads, and we're supposed to use iMovie Maker. And I found out you can make movie trailers with it. And so I made Come a on. horror movie trailer out of flint napping. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> For children. <laughs> wow. Terrifying them to flint nap now. <laughs> In a world where there's flint napping. <laughs> Only you can survive. <laughs> or can you? <laughs> It was more like post-apocalyptic was the theme of our documentary. So if all modern technology went away, how would you survive? <laughs> <laughs> it's the opposite water world. It is. Yeah, yeah it's stone world. <laughs> You're going to get a lot of like, uh, never mind, I'm not going to make that joke. Oh, yeah, no, no, rock world. <laughs> change it, change it to rock world. <laughs> no, wait, better. Pebble world. Yes. <laughs> Good job. I th- I definitely think we need more archaeology stuff on YouTube. There's not a whole lot. Yeah. Or if it is, it's very hidden. On some of it out there, they've got interesting information, but they're not making it easily accessible to the general populace as far as how they're conveying the information. Mm. And that's my ideally, I really want to be able to make it something as a platform where archaeologists can actually share their work with the general populace in a more palatable, easy to process, easy to digest way without Mm -hmm. dumbing it down, giving the general populace something to be able to do if they want to get interested, if they're interested in it and they want to do something with it or experience that kind of work themselves, but then also realize not just the experiential side, but also the experimental side. That sounds like it would be really cool. Yeah. Share as soon as you can. All right. So thank you guys so much for coming in here today and sharing your experiences. Yeah. Thanks for having us. Yes. Thank you. Anytime. We hope to bring you back soon. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'll be back. I'll be back. The <laughs> <laughs> great casual conversation of experiences. <laughs> so we'll be putting some links in the description for some of the work that Kristen and Jesse have been working on. And that's all for today's episode. Thanks for being here for our episode of I Dig It featuring Kristen and Jesse. And a reminder, if you like this theme song of ours, both the intro and the outro, it was made by the wonderful Cola Break from the band Luna Riptide. You can check them out on all social medias at Luna Riptide Band. And if you have any questions or comments or want to participate in any sort of way, be sure to check out our social medias at Podcast on Twitter and Instagram, as well as our email, idigitpodcast at gmail.com. See you next time. Bye!
This show is produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.